very warm welcome to all our listeners. Thank you for tuning in. I hope you will enjoy this podcast. Hi Kaison, it's a pleasure to have you. Let's get started by knowing a little bit about yourself. Sure thing. I spent 10 years as an M&A advisor working on both the buy and sell side. I started with small privately held companies and worked my way up and with a focus in the hospitality industry, worked with some of the brands like Kimpton, Extended Stay America, La Quinta. And then from there, I got involved with um, working with small financial institutions like community banks, helping them raise capital, buy and sell as well. And then that led, that led up to the recession uh, around 2006, seven. And uh, that was a pivotal moment for me. I was really interested in doing something different and looked over at this technology sector and thought that was really interesting. And um, I, I got involved with a startup that didn't really pan out the way I, I wanted it to. But what it did do was expose me to the way software engineers would utilize these project management tools to manage developing software, which gave me the inspiration to start a company in 2012 called Dealroom to essentially bring project management product to the M&A industry. And um, it, it was rough. We started that in 2012 and probably didn't get meaningful traction until around mm-hmm. 2017, but st- stuck with it, went through the ups and downs and all, all the learnings that, that need to happen to, to get to where you want to go. Uh, and we started solving for the diligence process. When you go buy a company, there's always a lot of information you need to review Mm -hmm. from the company you're acquiring. So you have to request all this information. And then there's a lot of back and forth clarification questions. Uh, so we basically built that around that workflow to make that more efficient. Then things evolved where we started solving for the integration portion where after you buy the company, you need to integrate it. And then after that, we added functionality for the pipeline management. How do you track sourcing these deals similar to typical pipeline management products and evolved it into a full lifecycle management. So one portal to manage a whole M&A deal, end to end, all parties involved. Uh, and it was a little later where one of the things we realized in the industry was that the industry itself was very siloed and lacked best practices and standardizations. So with that and a friend's encouragement to start a podcast, we started M&A Science leveraging the podcast platform to enable practitioners to share lessons learned so we can in turn document some of the best practices, identify the pattern, really understand what are proven mm-hmm. techniques in the industry. That led to some fun stuff. We've published over 350 blogs, eBooks, published two books. One of the books that's more notable is mm-hmm. a book called Agile M&A based on case studies with Google and Atlassian and particularly how they use agile techniques and their many approach. And today we, we operate a hybrid company based on education business lines and, and technology uh, lines That's as well. wonderful. So let me ask you uh, one thing. So um, during uh, my, as an individual, during my journey, right, uh, I do have raised a couple of rounds for different ventures. And does, is your software able to solve a particular problem? So for instance, uh, how do you manage the scenario wherein, um, is it able to analyze contracts? For example, if you're looking, for example, uh, acquiring some business and they have a lot of contracts in place, right? 
customer contracts, vendor contracts, or I mean, there are tons of partnership contracts. There are n number of contracts which are in a, in any given company at any given point in time. Mm-hmm. So, do you also analyze those documents or no? We don't. That's mm-hmm. a, an emerging area. You see a handful of products out there that focus mm-hmm. on contract analysis. Uh, they're there. It's it's still early. They're pretty mm-hmm. complex products to use. But it, it's one of the areas that we are keeping an eye on because we foresee it being something that will evolve into a product like ours, where as you're doing diligence, you can have tools that allow you to do that analysis. And I, I think that the problem we're, we're trying to solve or for somebody to solve there is when you do an acquisition, mm-hmm. you have to review so much information. You have to uh, review all these customer contracts look for any of the risks there because there could be something crazy there could somebody have an agreement that agrees to like unlimited perpetual <laughs> liability and now for a large corporation yeah you can't absorb that risk uh, same thing with employment agreements so that's where having a product that can go through these documents and really surface the unique clauses that you really need to pay attention to would make things much much more efficient um, we're really interested right now in summarization technology. That's the big thing that we're looking to keep a, an eye on to um, help with those kind of scenarios. But I, this is pretty early. I mean, we're still working in an industry that's 20 years behind time. It's highly antiquated. Right now, the number one mission is getting them off of Excel. <laughs> Absolutely. I can understand that. And what has been the, uh, so in terms of, um, um, uh, if my estimate is that you have spent more than a decade with deal room building it. So what has been the most challenging aspect in entire? So from the point of view in terms of, uh, which is the most difficult aspect where to add as a feature into the software, you know, if, if I can ask in that particular fashion, like what has been the most difficult thing to achieve uh, during your, this journey uh, in terms of be, it can be a feature level or yeah, it- yes, please. I mean, well, it, it evolves as you go through the life cycle of building a business. Your year one, you have so many challenges of just getting the right technical resources that you can work with to be productive and create functionality. If you don't have that, uh, and, and that was one of the things I think a lot of people, including myself, didn't realize was it's it's not just I have an idea, I'm going to go build it and make money. It, it's you need to have this capability of being able to build a great product. And that, that comes really early as a big challenge, building the capability of building the product and then your actual approach and how you go about solving problems. We tend to uh, have a lot of assumptions and go out to solve problems based on assumptions when a lot of, the most important thing is to step back and validate the problems you're solving. In fact, if you do that so well, you may likely identify other problems or bigger problems that you should be prioritizing to solve for which will send you in a totally different direction. And then from there, you start mocking up or, or modeling out a solution, continue that feedback loop where we can go to your cohorts of potential customers and validate that that solution is the right solution to build. We learned this the hard way. This is why we had to have a false start reboot and follow this kind of pattern that led to creating a robust feedback loop that we continue to use today uh, as our approach of working with customers, understanding their problem, building a solution and, and to solve it. And then the other component is go to market, being able to validate your go to market. Again, same thing, had assumptions, went out to market, didn't work out that way. You really need to understand 
how customers learn about your product, buy the product. That you think hard building the product is the hardest part, and it's not. I can tell you uh, today, it's it's all about distribution. Distribution's one of the hardest things. In fact, nine times out of ten, I, I really believe that when I talk to other entrepreneurs, it's it's not this product or idea they have is what the world actually needs. Um, I, I think we have too many great things and products out there. It's everybody struggling with distribution, getting your solution to the right customers that have that problem. And that that if you can spend the time and actually create that capability where you can help customers or help businesses get their products and service to the right customers, like that, that's the biggest market. If you can focus on that, the distribution, understand how that works. Adding the products to the distribution model is a lot easier than building. I the think that's an excellent point. Uh, recently, I was just scrolling through Twitter, and uh, again, I mean, this point keeps on coming up again and again. I mean, uh, it sort of summarized this particular point itself. Supply is not the issue, but demand is what kills the most startup, or you can classify it as distribution, right? I mean, ultimately, unless you can figure it out, who will buy, and you don't have a strong feedback loop, um, because. Um, like I think uh, you mentioned perfectly, um, you start with certain assumptions and then you sort of iterate over that process and then refine, you know, what exactly is required from customer feedback continuously and build on top of it. So uh, then moving on, so what led you to sort of start the MA science thing, you know, the education and technology uh, piece? Did you felt there is a need to educate the market or like what was the reason? Uh, was it purely from the perspective of awareness creation or what was the thought? Well, we had a mission around it where we wanted to learn. We, we already had this approach. We were always doing interviews to learn from prospective customers and understand their problems. But the, the thing we learned quickly was everybody had such a unique way of looking at M&A that if we could continue doing these interviews and identify what approaches actually work and document it, that would be valuable resource for the industry. So that it was really early idea, not too much effort. I wasn't a big fan of doing all these interviews and stuff like that. I was a pretty introverted person. Uh, and I think that it just evolved. It grew on its own. I mean, we, we got very fortunate. We started about five years ago when at the time there was maybe five podcasts that cover mergers and acquisitions. And if you look at it today, there's over 50 and we rank right amongst the top. Um, I, I think that was getting in the right time was a big thing that, that helped us, but it, it was not just creating content for the sake of creating content, like understanding what's really, really valuable to your customers. And it, it now it just, it comes together where we've evolved it. We've, creative frameworks around how you manage M&A uh, and gotten support with some of the top organizations in, in the industry. And now we really use that. We still continue. That's our R&D. Like we have a public facing R&D where we learn these things and we build software solutions around it. Uh, now they really complement each other. And this is enabling us to go to market with new business lines where we provide training services around those best practices we're able to offer professional services to help organizations operationalize both the technology and practices. Mm -hmm. And if you were to uh, pick um, or share any sort of details around um, 
any deals uh, which you thought you know uh, it was impressive or it was sort of in terms of you know uh, you learned a lot from that particular a deal or some insights you want to share with our listeners i mean th- this past year uh we've seen Mirion go mm-hmm. ipo uh as a spac deal to goldman sachs mm-hmm. at 2.6 billion um I think Emerson did a really cool deal where they've acquired an $11 billion tech company and then they're carving out a couple of their tech business lines and integrating it with this other organization, um, which is a great play on value. Uh, And those are complex things, right? Because you're acquiring a business, but to be able to carve out businesses, those are complex and then in turn integrate them again. So um, we've seen some really interesting activities and are you a believer in SPACs um you know it's an interesting vehicle it's something that's it's just what's intriguing is the the thing's been around for a while I remember the first time I came across Mm -hmm. a blank check company more than 10 years ago you know maybe 15 years ago and I was just intrigued I was like what what is this they just you know go to raise money and you're planning to buy a company um, but not now it's, it's this new thing. I, I think it, it works well with mm. speculative businesses. You know, if you're doing something that just really isn't there today, like some of the EV businesses, you know, if we're going to build, um, you know, drones to fly people around or something like that, uh, it, it sort of makes sense for those highly speculative type of businesses. I, I think of a business is operating on, a long history and strong financials, a traditional IPO model would would likely be more favorable. Or could it be, I mean, most of the deals which I've saw, uh, I've seen in this market has been, I mean, uh, they don't have revenues, right? I mean, in terms of huge losses, right? I mean, uh, those are typically businesses which have gone through this particular route or maybe due to uh, scrutiny, right? I mean, there are certain, um, it's much easier to go public through this particular way instead of the traditional IPO, where there is many things which needs to be done. Uh, so, uh, is it a good thing? So, let me rephrase it. So, is it a good thing for the market to have uh, these instruments available uh, to take a company public? Or do you feel, I mean, you mentioned it, like for speculative businesses, uh, it makes sense. But overall, you know, in terms of overall picture, big picture, um, is it good for the market? I, I'm pro-capitalism. You know, anything you can be creative to create new vehicles, to create opportunities, to create movement of capital, to create uh, the freedom to make choices and do that, I'm 100% behind. So I, I, I'm an advocate. Am I directly involved with any of these facts? No. But, um, you, you know, I, I always like seeing the innovation and, and these things happen in the market. I, I think it always contributes to a greater good, whether we may see some uh, you know, near-term wins and losses, uh, I think that's abstract from the greater good of that we're at least trying new things and learning from it. And over time, we'll identify and and what actually works and learn from it. And the other thing which comes to my mind is, I mean, uh, uh, it is sort of a different topic, sort of, and it's like an agency, like agency, the valuations, right? So do you believe uh, or 
what's your thought process in terms of the current valuations in the uh, ecosystem uh, for example the ev company which you mentioned or the other companies which have gone public uh the combined market cap is way way uh, uh above the rest of the peers combined right or you can pick any other examples so how do you so couple of things so first is the valuations current valuations uh, uh do you think these are sustainable uh, that's my first question yeah no i mean i i i, I can't understand it i've worked in mna for a number of years and i've seen things evolve we i started in an industry that was standardized mm-hmm. on ebitda multipliers especially when you're working with private transactions uh and then you sort of work in public and see those things get stretched and other factors you know forward looking financials are, are main drivers these days um but today i i don't i don't understand you can't do a deal based off of existing financials you have to build a model with a lot of revenue with a lot of synergy assumptions to build your business case to justify doing the deal um so it's just it's very really different it's a very different way of of valuing companies uh, at some point <laughs> I'll, I'll get my head wrapped around it and be able to mm-hmm. make sense out of this stuff but you know to be frank and honest i i don't understand it i think what's driving it is just the high apply mm-hmm. of capital in the market that needs to be deployed i mean when you're looking at all these pe funds and the sheer volume of billion plus structured private equity funds uh and let alone all the capital resources and unstructured funds and, and these other different sources out there um plus the corporations sitting on cash it, this stuff needs to get deployed and i, I think that's what's really bidding up prices and valuation in the current um, time. I think it's good to know. Um, 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 uh, it's just not me who's able to not understand what's going on around uh, uh, with these crazy valuations. And um, so uh, moving on, um, what has been your experience, uh, uh, Kison, in terms of uh, buying a business, right? Uh, uh, what has you... What has been, what has you been learning uh, when someone is looking out to buy a business? What are the red flags or what are the things? How does someone go about uh, looking? What should be a typical checklist from your perspective when someone is looking to buy a business? There's a lot. Like you can literally take apart a business function by function and look for some of the risk items, and that's mm-hmm. a big part of diligence. Um, but I, I think the bigger thing to prioritize is how you're going to integrate the company and get value out of it. Uh, and sometimes we lose sight of that. We sort of get lasered in on what are these big red flag things or the risk or the, how the financials are and, and so forth. But ultimately, we're talking about two organizations that are going to come together and create value. Um, and so thinking, stepping back, thinking about what the end state at you're looking to achieve from the acquisition that's number one and bringing that end state to the front end of the process to um, allow it to drive with the company you're acquiring I, I think that that's one understanding what that looks like what's the outline of a go-to-market going to look like because ultimately each business is there to serve their respective customers how are we going to come together and create a better experience or more value for these customers uh, that's in turn going to produce better results for us. 
And then uh, the other part of that is our organizations need to work together. We need to come together as one company and we spend the time to understand each respected organization's values, which will help us understand culture and leadership approach. Because sometimes that's where the true red flags that cause the biggest problems and friction in a deal. It's not about the numbers or, you know, this cell in the model, those little things. It, it, it's people issues that cause the biggest problems. So if you can identify that earlier, the better. You may identify that you shouldn't be doing the deal because you have opposing different ways of doing business and culture. Um, you know, but earlier you understand the differences and where things could be complemented and how they would come together. I think that's the the biggest thing that a lot of companies tend to overlook. Mm-hmm. Uh, that makes sense. I mean, uh, these are the things which you mentioned, right? In terms of which are not, you cannot measure or these are not tangible aspects, right? It, these are just not numbers. I mean, uh, there are things beyond numbers. Uh, so how do you do integration and the culture? That's very important. So, um, any particular deal which comes to your mind which was really successful and any of the deal which just fell through apart like who which one was really successful um you know it's interesting let's see here what's a really successful deal you know it's because you, you don't measure success till mm-hmm. things long after and it's it's one of those things where uh, you sort of talk more about the failures than than the successes, um, and I, I, I'm you know I guess a little bit of the challenge is when we work with clients, usually you're you're wrapped around some NDAs, so you don't want to put anybody in the spot for a deal that didn't work out. Um, but they they do happen often where you just have some targets of value you anticipate on creating, and then you you essentially miss it where when you integrate the company, you don't reach the intended value. Um, and, and, and to be honest with you, it doesn't, it doesn't come up. Like we don't have clients mm-hmm. that come up and talk to us about that. Y- you know, it, it's something that we have to dig in early about when we're looking at optimizing mm-hmm. their process and understand what are some of those things that went wrong. Um, the common things tend to be around the change management component, stakeholder alignment. Those are the big things. And then there, there's the project management pieces, which we particularly work with, keeping uh, various stakeholders aligned throughout the process and focused on the highest priority task. Um, you know, th- those are all things that contribute to, to making the deal successful. Um, I had to think of a good story on what's Oh, maybe we can win. talk about the worst one. Yeah. The worst deals have we seen? I mean, it's just, you know, I had, uh, we had one that was in the, I mean, just, we had a lot of stories. I had one company where they were acquiring a business and it was like a landscaping business. Um, but they were a large publicly held company and they, they bought this tiny little landscaping business with maybe about 36 employees. They closed on a Friday and by Monday they had to let go of 32 of the employees. Um, they were, they're illegal Im- immigrants, so they, uh, couldn't have those employees, but that's like an example of you miss one thing in diligence and it, it really comes back to bite you. Um, there, there's a lot of those things. I guess, you know, I, I think for us, like we, we 
set up a lot of the infrastructure for these companies, but then we get a little bit of the stories from the client as opposed to when the client tells the story, it's a little different because they live and through it. And from your perspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've worked with some, I remember working one of my deals with a, mm-hmm. a publicly traded bank. They were small. They were traded on pink sheets. And uh, I, I was just taken back. We were going through the sales process and we were really trying to just scrap the, scrape the bank, like just trying to get it for what the entity was worth and their um, charter. Um, and it, we were struggling to even do that and get a deal done. And this bank just had, every time I kept working with this bank, it was just more and more <laughs> hair, hairy stuff kept coming out of it. You, you know, the, the CEO was like overpaying himself or bank was losing money. was having an affair with some of the employees. It was just one thing after another kept coming out of it. Um, and we couldn't get a deal done. Like we literally couldn't get a deal done. And you know, so things kind of dissolved in our, our relationship and we sort of moved on. Uh, but three months later, they ended up getting acquired by a large publicly traded company for like six Whoa. times more than what we were trying to, to get for the business. Uh, yeah. And, and then, and then that publicly traded company oh went completely God. bankrupt um, shortly after. So, you know, I mean, it's, this M and A stuff can Absolutely. be wild. I mean, I mean, uh, taking a cue from this example. So, uh, from your experience, you know, uh, uh, does merger and M and A work well? I mean, um, um, from a broader perspective, is it? I mean, the bankers do make money. I mean, the uh, people involved in the process to make money. But for ultimately, for the organization which is acquiring or getting acquired at the end of the day, I mean. Looking at the challenges, maybe, uh, be it integration, cultural, or the other end aspects which can kick in, uh, is it worth doing or how should I say? Is it, um, um, I don't have any data with me, but like the success rate, let's, 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 let me rephrase it that particular way. Um, well, there's a few factors in it. You know, there, there's a learning curve, right? You do M&A your first time, you're probably going to make a lot of mistakes and you're probably going to not get the best results that you're anticipating on. So there's that, where can you become a good acquirer and seasoned at doing this stuff? Uh, there's, there's your intentions of doing M&A. If you do a deal and it's very much aligned with your strategy, that's, I mean, that's a good thing. You, you could pull off some of these deals and have more bandwidth on the price you pay and whatnot, as long as it meets your strategic objectives. And I think that's where, where things really start getting foggy uh, is when you, that's not really clear. It's like, are we, are we doing the deal just for the sake of doing the deal? What, and just the more you can have a very defined strategy and align the transaction with that strategy, the better. Um, and, and I think there's a, varying depths of thinking that through uh, but the more detailed and and thought through that is the the better um i i think there's a public versus private factors that come in play when you're private I mean, you really really directly own those results i, I feel like when you're public you kind of are, are working on a different model um that in some ways can give you more scrutiny in some ways can give you more play on you know whether you're doing good deals or bad deals 
just because of the, the partly the size and just the the public perception a, a lot of the public retail investors don't really understand m a so when they hear of the activity it's it's they're looking that it's you know bumping up market cap and and just general revenue revenues and so forth so um you know th- those things can come and play on on how you approach deals um we see some of these other st- approaches where they're doing roll-ups a lot of pe back roll-ups out there and then they're they're playing on on just multiplier by size and growth and that gives them a flexibility to pay a premium on on those deals in regard to the the greater picture of hitting a higher multiplier um so it, it really really goes back to like why are you doing the deal uh, it, you know, when, when that's really clarified and you have that, mm-hmm. that rationale, uh, against on what you're anticipating the results to be, you know, the, I think that's, it's unique to each situation. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's hard to generalize whether doing M&A is good or bad. There's folks that aren't sophisticated and that tend to do bad deals, but if you're, if you're good at doing M&A, you generate <laughs> yeah, a lot of value. So let me it. ask this way. So uh, recently I was going through, uh, there is a big trend, right, in the D2C space, uh, direct-to-consumer market. You have different brands globally, which are scaling up, reaching $100 million revenue, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I found this concept very interesting. So the idea is, let me just try to find the name of the company meantime. So the idea is um, you're starting a startup, uh, which will acquire other smaller brands, right? So uh i think the name was thrasy or something it was um a consumer uh, goods company so the idea is basically mm-hmm. you're creating one brand under which you will acquire all these smaller d2c startups and try to derive a value i have absolutely no clue how will this work but from day zero these guys have uh, or similar similar company i mean there are many companies now across europe US, UK, which has come up where they have huge check sizes. They have raised tons of money, $500 million, half a billion dollar, a billion dollar, who knows. So how does this particular piece, I mean, when you're starting a company itself just to integrate the rest of the businesses, I mean, uh, what comes to your mind? Because it's it, it it's like, I mean, if I'm an entrepreneur, right, why will I start a business i mean it depends like if i have a problem statement i mean it's much easier as an entrepreneur to consolidate market than start one of the companies which gets acquired by these companies i mean does it make sense i mean it's so fascinating and interesting to see this sort of model coming in uh, so i like to know what's what are your what what are your thoughts yeah it's a, it's your approach to create value and for those kind of large-scale roll-ups what they're doing is doing a series of acquisitions with that obvious macroeconomic effect of the bigger I can get the company, the higher the value is going to be worth. It's mm-hmm. going to trade a higher multiplier. But a- as you do the acquisitions, you're looking to drive synergy through two avenues, cost synergies. Um, mm-hmm. You know, where, where can we cut costs? You know, if we can consolidate the accounting, if we can consolidate some of the uh, marketing functions and, and things of that sort, we can save some costs. We can. We don't need two CRM mm-hmm. tools here. We can consolidate that into one, and, and have some cost savings. Um, and then revenue synergies. And what what can we do to increase the revenue synergies or the revenues of this business? Is it we're buying a product and we have this large distribution network that if we add the product to it, 
it's going to inherently get a lot more exposure and opportunities for customers to purchase the product. Um, so they're, they're looking at those things in addition to, to just um, doing the deals for the uh, immediate revenue. And is this something uh, which has been done similarly in past? I mean, uh, such sort of structures in particular space where we can draw some parallels, analogies, if you can recall. Mm-hmm. So doing that yeah, kind yeah, of yeah. deals, um, you know, I tell, I tell, there's a lot of things like that where, you, you know, you just like, uh, you go buy mm-hmm. things in bulk, you tend to get a better price on it, right? You go to Costco, oh, yeah. <laughs> you can buy things in bulk and you can get a savings on it. Mm-hmm. You, you know, I mean, well, and the, the, the whole idea is when you do that, when you have any vendor and you have that relationship, that, that volume allows you to... Sure. It just gives you the economic, the buying power. Um, here, it's doesn't play exactly that way when you're buying assets and consolidating it. You know, you're essentially building it into uh, a larger entity, and it, it's it's just worth more. You know, where hey, you can go around and buy these hundred companies one by one, but I've already done that. I've already assembled these hundred companies together and, and rolled it up into one. Uh, now you can buy this all to one. You're going to save the the five years it took to do that, and that, that's where where that value is created, and why you get the the exponential higher multiplier for for that. Um, so the it, it in this case it, it creates more value, um, because of the the work that's involved. Um, I I think there's just a lot, a lot of things like we you know when you buy custom products. It's just you, you pay more for it because there's a lot more work involved with it. You go get a custom suit made. It costs you a lot more, but the the work's done. The the end results, what you're looking for. Um, so I, I think that's like a big factor in consideration, especially when you look at uh, these buy versus build scenarios, right? So a company does these acquisitions of a product. It's like we we could build the product, but we can get to market two years faster if we just spend the right. 20 million to acquire this product right great 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 i mean uh that's wonderful so um so um kiss on what uh you know uh keeps you excited or what's what is that particular thing in this entire space you know which you are very excited about uh which keeps you going i mean which you look forward to or something down the line for next three four five years which you see uh interesting things which are happening around this this industry is massive opportunity it's so antiquated there's so much opportunity to create value optimize and the next four or five years we just we don't see an end to it we see a lot of things and capabilities we develop that we can get to various corporations and Mm -hmm. and help them with their m&a approach and the industry itself has a lot of room to evolve we've already see a lot of the sales and marketing industry picking up on these AI technologies. Uh, so be able to learn from those other industries and bring those ideas to our industry uh, gives, gives us a ton of opportunity to go from just the tactical management of M&A into more of the things we talked about a little bit earlier of how, how do you actually apply these things in the deal to make the, the, uh, the whole pieces more efficient and ultimately, 
I think the, the bigger picture of doing this and trying to make the process more efficient is to create a better people experience. Uh, we talked about the people and values and that's where it ultimately creates the friction in the deal. So if we can create a model that allows teams to work better, collaborate better together, they're ultimately going to have better results. They're going to be aligned. They're going to find better ways of working together. And, um, I think that you'll see an industry that's going to thrive with much better results from doing these acquisitions. Great, great, uh, great. It was wonderful to have you, uh, um, really enjoyed our discussion and learned a lot. I mean, um, still I need to, uh, read a lot in this space. Interesting things are happening. Um, any, uh, your final words or, um, if you wanted to share something with our listeners, if I've missed asking. So, yeah. Oh, I mean, I, uh, I think we covered a lot. If anybody's interested in M&A, that's been a big area. We always try to keep information available. Um, we also have a diversity scholarship program. If anybody's particularly interested in pursuing a career in M&A, uh, it's a two-year program that we provide in, you can go to our website, mascience.com, and find more information about M&A. And uh, also, it's, it's in there. I don't remember which tab it is, but there there is information about the scholarship program. That's great. Uh, that's a wonderful initiative. Again, uh, thank you so much for your time, Kisan.